0: Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Scheckman. We look at our political and cultural divide today and think that it can't get much worse. What we forget is that it has been worse. Not just when policy matters were settled by a duel or literally pitted brother against brother, but even in the 1960s and 1970s, students were shot at at Kent State. Law enforcement was murdered in politically motivated robberies, and even the bombing of the U.S. Capitol was part of our contemporary political history and division. A powerful example of this is a group of left-wing women, fresh from their time in the weather underground, who got together in the early 1980s in the first blush of the Reagan years to become essentially domestic terrorists, bent on opposing the political, corporate, and government ideologies of the time. My guest William Rosnow takes us back to that time in his recent book, Tonight We Bomb the U.S. Capitol. William Rosnow is a senior research scientist at CNA, a nonprofit research and analysis organization, and a fellow in international security at New America. It is my pleasure to welcome William Rosnow here to talk about America's first female terrorist group at a really violent time in the US. William Rosnow, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Jeff, thanks very much. It's great being
0: here. One of the things uh, that that one has to understand, I think first about this story is the context of the time, the amount of violence that was going on at the time, the bombings that were taking place, things that if any one of them happened today, it would be an international incident.
1: Um, absolutely. Um, in fact, I was watching a uh, front line this is a frontline two-parter on a the political divide in the United States, um, the election of Trump. And there was this endless discussion um, by these various talking heads and journalists about how today America has never been more divided, which to me is absolutely laughable. I mean, you can talk about the 1850s and the run-up to the Civil War. Things were quite a bit more divided. And you can talk about the 1960s and into the um, 1970s, where you said, I mean, the... There was an incredible level of political violence. Um, there were, in the early 1970s, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of bombings in the United States a year. So, yes, we have our divisions today, certainly, but um, I don't think anything comparable um, to what was going on in these earlier periods in American history.
0: I mean, there were the bombings that, that we're talking about, but also political assassination police officers, law enforcement being shot at and killed, uh, robberies that were taking place that killed law enforcement. I mean, it was a really violent period.
1: Absolutely. In fact, um, one of the uh, groups uh, that I talk about in my book, the Black Liberation Army, which was an outgrowth of the Black Panther Party, um, they made it their mission to um, assassinate cops, uh, mostly in New York, but also in, in the Bay Area, um, in other parts of the country, and they would literally uh, go up to uh, police, policemen sitting in their, in their cars uh, and shoot them in the head or lure them into um, housing projects and assassinate them. And it's absolutely remarkable. And as you said, yeah, if, if that happened today, um, it, I mean, it would be almost unimaginable, and hopefully we're not going to see, see that again. But, okay, that's very, very different from, you know, Antifa or, um, you know, people breaking windows at, in, at demonstrations um, that, 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 that we see today.
0: What was the psychological impact of all of this? Because it, it really goes to the very heart of whether or not this was terrorism at the time. Because terrorism, it seems, has a very specific goal in terms of its its fear factor and psychological impact, there was so much violence at the time. One wonders if it was even terrorism. If it might might be called something else.
1: I mean, terrorism specialists. Um, you know, there's a, there's a cottage industry of of coming up with definitions of terrorism. And according to one estimate by um, a scholar named Alex Schmidt, there's something like 125 different definitions of terrorism in the in the academic literature um and and every uh sort of scholarly or sort of policy oriented study um about terrorism usually begins with the question of definitions what is terrorism so it's it's an elusive concept um it's a contested concept but you know there are plenty of contested concepts i mean what's democracy what's pornography but you know for me in essence um Terrorism is the, you know, purposeful use of violence or the threat of violence to further political, social, um, ideological uh, agendas um, intended to um, provoke um, fear and anxiety among a wider population and to really... um, Try to cause that population to doubt the ability of the state to to um, protect people. So it's really the, the psychological dimension, as you said. The psychological dimension of terrorism is absolutely paramount. It's not the individual act, which in most cases, I mean, 9/11 aside or the Oklahoma City bombing, aren't that incredibly destructive. But it's the knock-on effect. It's the fear. It's the popular fear. It's the anxiety um, that terrorists seek to provoke, and, and some are able to do it.
0: It's interesting that so many of these groups, and, and M-19, the May 19th group, this group of women that, that you talk about, and tonight we bombed the U.S. Capitol, had a kind of social justice basis for whatever it was that they were doing.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, guess, I guess you could call it social justice. I mean, they were, um, most of them had been or almost all of them had been activists in the 1960s. Um, They had been, most of them had been involved with students for a democratic society. And then later the weather underground, which broke up in the mid um, mid seventies. And in some ways, May 19th is, I think, continuation of, of the weather underground. But these, these people were, I would say, um, they were pretty committed, um, Marxist-Leninists and anti-imperialists. So social justice was part of it. I mean, they were um, certainly supporters of gay liberation, human rights, um, stuff like that, kind of more social justice things. But they also had a pretty well-defined, well, it's actually pretty opaque if you try to take it apart, but they were quite ideological. And part of this global struggle against imperialism um, in a a supporting role. So in their view, their job was to um, promote and and, um, assist revolutionary forces in Central America, um, in the Middle East, uh, in Southern Africa, and within the United States. Um, Black and brown people, who, in their view, were being colonized um, on Indian reservations, and on ghettos, and in Puerto Rico. And so they, they saw themselves, yeah, as part of this kind of epic um, worldwide struggle. And as self-described, they called themselves North American anti-imperialists, um, they saw themselves as being in, in the belly of the beast and so they were inside the United States, so they had a particular obligation um, to take actions that would, uh, they thought, would, would help derail this um, worldwide American um, imperialism.
0: And specifically, who were these women? You say that they were originally part of the Weather Underground. It was kind of a spinoff from the Weather Underground. Talk about who they were and what so what some of their backgrounds were.
1: Yeah, Um and, and their, their backgrounds their their stories were I found just so compelling and, and so interesting most most had been in SDS or the, or the Weather Underground or, or both. Um, they were all um, basically from middle class backgrounds. Um, they were very intellectual, very well educated uh, places like Radcliffe, Barnard, Cornell, um, University of Texas, Berkeley um, came from you know very stable uh loving uh homes um the idea that somehow and i guess a lot of people understandably have this idea that terrorists are are somehow deranged or they're exhibiting um they're the product of of some hideous uh upbringing um just isn't isn't true um it isn't true across the board and it certainly isn't true uh with respect to may 19th so Um, To take one example, um, Marilyn Buck, a very important member of the May 19th um, inner circle. Um, She was from Austin, Texas. Um, Her father was a veterinarian turned Episcopal priest. Um, She went to St. Stephen's Episcopal School, private school in Austin, Um, you know, had a classic, um, upper middle class, early 1960s upbringing, um, you know, not incredible privilege, but a a very comfortable life. Um, and she, um, over the course of, um, several years became radicalized, um, very involved with SDS, um, wound up, uh, in the Bay area, Berkeley specifically, um, and she became what was described as, she was described as the only white member of the Black Liberation Army. And her job, she's a very intelligent, disciplined, um, I'd say professional revolutionary, her job was to support the men in the BLA. Um, She did things like, um, you know, uh, her big job was as an armorer was buying weapons for these guys and buying ammunition. Uh, it was a lot easier for a nice, uh, attractive Southern gal from Texas to um, to move around without uh, drawing a lot of attention, a um, lot easier for her than it was for the BLA guys, who were pretty hardcore um, ex-Panthers. Um but she made a mistake, and she um, bought a thousand rounds of ammunition. She'd go from di- to different states. I mean, outside of California, she went to Arizona, went elsewhere. She bought a thousand rounds of ammunition uh, with a fake ID, and um, that was a federal offense. She got sentenced in 1973, ten years uh, to uh, the a woman's uh, federal prison in West Virginia. And uh, in 1977, she got a furlough. Um, And those were more innocent times. I guess federal prisoners, I I doubt they get furloughs nowadays. She went to visit her, her parents. Okay, She came back. And then she got another furlough to
0: visit her lawyer
1: in New York. And so in 1977, she goes off and she doesn't return from her furlough and she was at large for the next eight years so it it was these kinds of of stories that the 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 the, the biographies the the um life trajectories of the women and the one or two men who were in the inner circle that really that, that was one of the things that really drew me drew me in i mean just absolutely fascinating I hope some of your listeners agree with it.
0: And talk about Judy Clark, who was another one of these fascinating characters.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and 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 for me, um, maybe the most interesting of all. So Judy, um, she was a classic. Um, what was known as a red diaper baby. Her parents were both. Um, she grew up in New York. Her parents were both uh, high-level functionaries in the Communist Party USA. Um, and then. One day in the early 1950s, the father makes an announcement to the family, to little Judy and her mother, mother and, brother, we're moving to Moscow, (laughs) where he'd been appointed um, the the correspondent for the Daily Worker, the Communist Party USA's um, daily newspaper. So the family in the early 1950s I think Stalin was actually dead at that point. Um, you know, moved off to Moscow. Uh, her parents, um, and Judy was quite young at this point, her parents um, were starting to get disillusioned um, with with communism. Um, they'd seen the, you know,
0: yellow-eyed,
1: pockmarked face of, of Stalinism up close. Um, and, they, after they returned to the united states um they the parents gradually over time moved away from the party and actually left the party and um they left the party but judy was 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 bitter about their decision she she loved the party she loved the warm embrace i mean the communist party at the time they had they had um Summer camps. They had schools. They had musical events. It was a. It, she loved the warm embrace of the party and uh, became um, just uh, you know very antagonistic toward her parents. Um, and interestingly, uh, her father, who uh, remained a man of the left, he was involved um, with Dissent magazine. Um, and uh, anyway, he. He remained a Democratic Socialist. Um, in 1969, she was part of a, a protest they took over an administration building. The president of the University of Chicago, Edward Levy, who went on, went on to become um, attorney general under Gerald Ford, kicked her out. So Judy's father went to Irving Howe, uh, his colleague at Descent Magazine and the great literary critic. Irving Howe, who was very close to Saul Bellow, so Saul Bellow goes to Levy um, and and says, "Can you you know give give her a break? You know can not you can you uh, you know let her back in?" And Levy says, "And this is a direct quotation: No, she's a bad one." <laughs> so Judy was out. Fast forward to 1981. Uh, Judy is involved in the notorious uh, Brinks robbery in upstate New York, October 20th, 1981. Um, she winds up with three consecutive 25-year-to-life uh, sentences for second-degree murder. Um, she's locked up at the uh, Bedford Hills prison in, in Westchester. Um, about uh, the 20, I think it's 2016. She, there she is in Bedford Hills, and um, she's told one afternoon, "Oh, you have a visitor coming." whole entourage shows up, and who appears but the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, and sits down with her and spends an hour with her and um, decides, after spending an hour with her, that uh, he's going to commute her sentence. And commutation basically meant that she was uh, going to be eligible to, for, for possibly for parole. So she went up for parole once and then uh, in April of this year, um, and she was turned down. In April of this year, she went up for parole a second time and was freed after more than 35 years in prison. So, again, just for me, a remarkable story. Um, and, and just uh, I, I, I found uh, just so compelling and interesting on a lot of different levels.
0: And talk a little bit about this plot to bomb the Capitol how it evolved, and, what, and really what the object was, because it wasn't necessarily to kill anybody.
1: Right. Um, ostensibly, um, and if you, you read, they issued a communique um, after, after the fact. Um, they, it, it was actually more than a plot. They did bomb the Capitol, and they caused, um, by one estimate, a um, million dollars worth of damage in this, with this one bombing. They didn't kill anyone. Um
0: they said in their communique um
1: this had to do with, you know, the US invasion of Grenada. They were protesting that. They didn't they signed the communique. They used a variety of of, of different names. So, um when they issued these communiques after their their bombings, um and they called themselves the Armed Resistance Unit. Um but it was really this inner core of May 19th. And uh So they, um, they, they, the the attack was uh, was spectacular, Um, and uh, as I said in the communiqué, they chose not to kill uh, any of the senators. They said we we um, we decided to attack, and I'm paraphrasing here, the um, the institutions of imperialism rather than killing individuals, but we reserve that right and these senators have to understand that their blood is not sacred so you can interpret that as bravado or you can say hmm they at least considered uh, a lethal action the bomb went off late at night the Senate wasn't in session although there had been a reception earlier that that evening so um, yeah that was that was uh, that was probably their most spectacular achievement interestingly um it's sort of a dividend from their point of view the bomb um, it, the bomb did you know extensive damage, a huge crater in the wall um, but it also shredded a portrait of john c. calhoun and uh, as, as as some of your listeners know John C. Calhoun been a senator, I believe he'd been vice president. He was what the great historian uh, Richard Hofstadter called the Karl Marx of the master class. He was the theoretician um, of, of nullification, of, um, of, uh, of, of slavery, of um, really white supremacy in a lot of ways. Um, and and uh, actually, there was a, he was a Yale graduate. There was a college at Yale which uh, called Calhoun, which only recently, I mean, the last couple of years, Yale changed the name uh, to something else. Uh, but <laughs> it was sort of an interesting little dividend for May 19th that this, um, you know, portrait of this kind of diabolical figure um, was destroyed in the attack.
0: Talk a little bit about the country's reaction to the attack, how it was perceived and reported.
1: Um, it it got national attention it made um, you know the evening news and and then the three networks Um, it was covered pretty extensively Um, but I think ultimately it was seen as sort of a a one off thing Um, I think people um, they they were I don't want to say blasé but um, you know it just seemed to be the work of perhaps some, some, you know, uh, a couple of kooks. It wasn't seen as particularly um, threatening or, or dangerous, um, but it, 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 it was reported, and it, it certainly was, um, uh, you know, heavily investigated by the FBI. But there wasn't, there wasn't a sense of national panic or anything like that.
0: One of the things that that becomes clear in this is that this was really pretty small potatoes compared to some of the things that were being planned and talked about.
1: Yeah, um, so the bombings at that, that the Capitol, they bombed um, the Washington Navy Yard on two different occasions. Um, they bombed at the, at the Navy Yard. They they bombed um, the officers' club, and their communique basically said, you know. Uh, and this is to, to paraphrase, you know, we, we want these, um, you know, agents of imperialism to to, to basically realize that they, they are vulnerable too, um, that they are not totally safe. Uh, they bombed um, an FBI field office on Staten Island in New York. They bombed uh, the South African consulate uh, in New York. They bombed the Uh, patrolman's benevolent association headquarters in lower manhattan um so they were they were fairly active um but one and and so one of the things i thought about a lot is okay but they didn't really kill anybody i mean their role in the brink's robbery aside these bombings didn't kill anyone but uh, was that the end of the story well in 1984 and in 1985, in two different places, um, members of, of May 19th were arrested. And these arrests um, led very quickly to, to the discovery of these, um, I, I don't know what to call it other than arsenals. Okay, so in um, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, uh, outside of Philadelphia, in, in, a, in, a, in a storage, storage locker. Um, the police found uh, hundreds of pounds of TNT. It um, was in very bad condition. It was sweeping um, nitroglycerin, very dangerous and unstable, and also detonation cord, um, blasting caps, uh, thousands of rounds of ammunition, and dozens and dozens of automatic weapons, including full automatic um, Uzi uh, rifles. And similarly, in 1985, in Doylestown, um, Pennsylvania, um, another massive arsenal. Similarly, dynamite, um, debt cord, hundreds and hundreds of rounds of ammunition, rifles, um, uh, 9mm pistols, uh, pistols with their serial numbers uh, 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 filed off, and thousands of blank, Identification cards so social security cards drug enforcement agency IDs FBI IDs some of the women were master printers so you have to ask or at least I had to ask um, what what was all this stuff for right how far were they really willing to go I mean we're not just talking about to me anyway it seems like not just symbolic bombing that arsenal for? I mean, it sounds like they were on a wartime footing, or at least they were anticipating um, kind of really going to war at some point. And I'd also say, um, in um, in the court documents uh, that I that I that I was able to review the National Archives, um, there were a lot of sort of internal documents and, and, and papers that, that that had been recovered. Um, during these various busts. And these people were intellectuals. They spent a lot of time talking, yakking, writing position papers and circulating them amongst themselves. And in one of these papers, uh, it's quite chilling. uh, One of the members is saying the time is right for what he called selective assassination, Um, killing prosecutors, killing cops, judges, uh, other sort of agents of imperialism and the group um no one defected from the group everyone was arrested they kept going to the bitter end in 1985 and i guess the question is um yeah would they would they have would if if they hadn't been stopped how far would they have gone
0: did they have a second generation that that would come along were there people that were that they were mentoring that that weren't arrested in the mid eighties. You
1: know, I they they had a um, and this is according to the the FBI. I, I was able to get thousands of pages of um, FBI uh, FBI documents um, released under the Freedom of Information Act, and they they talked. Um, in these documents, the FBI talked about how May 19th, which had a, a whole series of front groups like the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, which was an early vision, version of, of Antifa. And, um, there, there were probably a few hundred people in these front groups. And I, I don't think anyone in the front groups really understood they, they didn't know about this underground apparatus and this bombing, um, But they they talked about using, the FBI talked about how they used these front groups as sort of recruiting grounds, you know, talent spotting, um, you know, who seemed to be really committed and and dedicated. Um, But they didn't really bring in more people. And I think part of it was um, they just ultimately couldn't attract people to this campaign. I mean, even the far left in the United States at the time considered, to the extent they considered May 19th at all, considered them to be, you know, absolute wackos. Um, and so they didn't, and they thought about trying to, they certainly thought about trying to expand this kind of inner core, but ultimately decided, uh, decided against it. So they, they never had... They never really cultivated a next generation.
0: William Rosenau. his book about this period is the night they bombed the U.S. Capitol. Bill, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Jeff, it was great. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.